Father, thank you very much for Libby Christian Church and the witness they have in this community. Father, for the many years that they've been faithful in doing your will and shining your light. And I pray for them today that they will continue to do that. I pray for them tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next year and the next decade that, Father, you will continue to be faithful to them and that they will continue to be faithful to you and that this community will reflect your love, your light, your will for how you want us to be all throughout. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Don. I don't know if you realize this or not, but holding a Bible in your hands, the ability to just hold the Word of God in your hands is one of the greatest privileges mankind has ever known. Being able to hold the Word of God, to open the Word of God, and to study the Word of God is a fascinating, wonderful, life-changing privilege. But it is one that has come at great cost to a lot of people. And it is not something that we should ever take for granted. Here's what I mean by that. Somewhere between the years of 300 and 400 AD, the Bible that we have today was compiled. These 66 books were put together. But when they were originally assembled, they were put together in the Latin language and they were kept in the Latin language, best way to say it, for the better part of a thousand years. And when I say they were kept in Latin for a thousand years, here's what I mean by that. It was illegal to translate the Bible into any other language than Latin. And that means that the Bible that we take for granted today, the one that maybe rolls around in the back seat of your pickup or sits on the coffee table in your house covered with dust, that means that this Bible was only for the privileged people, the educated people. The everyday person couldn't even get a hold of a copy that they could read. It could not be written in their language. But a thousand years or so after that happened, a thousand years, let that sink in, a thousand years later, in the mid-1380s, a fellow named John Wycliffe decided that he was going to make the Bible readable for everyday man. He was going to translate it into English. And he started that process. He did not complete it, but he started that process. It so upset the powers that be that at the end of Wycliffe's life, they had arrested him, placed him in his home on house arrest, and he remained there until he died. Not very long after he died, they dug up his bones. The church dug up his bones and burned them as if to say that he could not experience the resurrection. They didn't want people holding the Bible in their hands. 150 years later, a fellow named William Tyndale picked up what Wycliffe had started, and he continued the process of translating the Bible into English. He was still not accepted well. Mm -hmm. People didn't want to see that. So here's what they did. They arrested him as well, and they burned him at the stake, and while he was on fire, they strangled him. Can you imagine that? 
There are pictures in modern art of the burning and the strangulation of Wycliffe. You can go on the internet and just hit the images of it and you can see it. All because he wanted to bring the Bible into everyone's hands. Make it readable for people. Make it something that they could study, something that could change their lives. And he was considered a criminal for that action. Unto death. Isn't that an incredible thing? But here's the interesting thing about Tyndale's Bible in English. It is still the basis for most translations that we have today. The things that Tyndale did all the way back then still governs what we hold in our hands today. So, in essence, what Joseph would say in Genesis chapter 50, what was intended for evil, God uses for good. Mm -hmm. And we still get the privilege of reaping some of the effects of what he did in the 1500s, the late 1500s. Well, of course, we know about King James then translating the Bible into English because he wanted everyone to have it. But before that happened, Henry VIII picked up the mantle of what Tyndale was doing. And he said he thought it was important that a volume of great value be placed in every church. So he wanted to make sure that there was a Bible in every church that people could read. So he placed one in every church. And, and when he says of great value, he also means of great substance. It was a big Bible. It was physically a large Bible. But people could go in and they could open it and just begin reading it. And as they did, spontaneous Bible study would break out. People would hear somebody reading from the Word of God and they would come in and listen and absorb it because people have been hungry for the truth of Scripture since it first came to be. So it shouldn't surprise any of us. There's a crazy little detail with that Bible that Henry VIII wanted to make sure everybody had access to. And it's kind of a cool one. Listen to this. Don, tell that story. Yeah, so... Um because it wasn't available to everyone and it was kind of a unique thing, they actually chained the Bible to the pillars of the church and it had, had the uh, nickname the Great Chain Bible. And uh, they had to do that to keep people from stealing God's word. They would take it. And uh, it's funny, they would even, uh, Bible studies would break out during mass, during church services. And so while they were having church, people would come up and just read the Bible and little Bible studies would break out during church, which is crazy, but people just didn't have access to the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. The Great Chain Bible. They had to chain the Bible in the churches so nobody would steal it. People wanted the Word of God in their own language. They wanted to be able to study it. That is just absolutely spectacular. It really is. However, even though we have access to God's Word the way we do today. Many people, not just owning one Bible, but multiple Bibles. Mm -hmm. Don, how many Bibles do you own? Shelves. <laughs> Shelves. <laughs> Shelves of Bibles, yeah. That's really a good way of saying it. I have no idea how many Bibles I own. There's a, a couple of shelves full of them here at the church. We have another couple shelves at home. We just love the Word of God in our family just as you and Stephanie mm -hmm. do. And so a lot of folks, just like we would illustrate between us, have the exact same thing going on in your own homes. You have a lot of Bibles in your house. Yet today it's still a struggle for some people to study the Bible to know how to do that. So this morning, 
we want to show you a way of studying the Bible, and we're calling it studying the Bible devotionally. So just in your own personal devotions, we want to show you a way to do that that can help open up discussions with other people about the Word of God. But we're going to do it kind of uniquely, maybe different than what you would expect. Meaning yeah. what? I mean, we're not, we're not doing this as scholars or, or preachers. This is not how we study for sermons or lessons. This is just how, for me personally, this is how I study the Bible individually. This is how I study it with my, my little men's group that I have. We call them four, core four groups. This is what we do. So this is, this is something for everyone, not for you know, just the people who do it professionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to utilize two passages of Scripture from the book of 1 Peter. We've been in a study of this book for several weeks. We're going to continue that on today. And the reason we're, we're doing this with these two passages is they are easy for us to read, recognize that they are there, and then promptly forget about because they are hard for us to apply in our culture and in our own applications. So we're going to take these two passages, and we'll show you how to do this. I'm going to do one of the passages, Don will do the other, and then you can follow along and see this Bible study technique. So let's just get into it. Yeah, so Phil, let's start, let's start with yours. Tell me about your very first Bible that you really studied. What, what, what made it special to you? See, I'm really glad you asked for that, that differentiation, my first Bible that I really studied. The first Bible I ever remember having is the same one that a lot of folks sitting in this room had. It was the picture Bible that children have. And mom and dad would read stories out of that at night, and I'd carry it to Sunday school. And Betsy Billings, my ancient Sunday school teacher that meant so much to me and others, would give us a gold star for bringing that to church. And then I remember getting the Gideon Bible in fifth grade. You remember yep. getting that, the Gideon New Testament? Yeah, award Bible. Yep, yep. <laughs> I got that one and, and still have it, haven't opened it. The print is so small in it, that would require a, a move of the Holy Spirit for me to be able to actually read the words on the page, but I still have that Bible. Then when I was baptized, I received a Bible from our youth minister that was of great value to me as well, but I didn't really study it, I read it. The first Bible that I studied from, I bought when I was 16 years old. I was working at Kmart in Hutchison, Kansas, and wanted a leather-bound Bible, and not only a leather-bound Bible, but a leather-bound study Bible. So I went down to our local bookstore and bought this one. And when I pulled it off the shelf the other day, Don looked at it just like this. I hadn't even opened it. And he said, Thompson Chain Reference, right? And I said, yep, Thompson Chain Reference, because we all bought them. We all had them. Yeah. We all had them <laughs> during those days. I bought it when I was 16 years old. I have marked it up. I have highlighted things in it. I have studied from the front to the back in it. And all of that began when I was a teenager because I had a youth minister that taught us to love the Word of God, and he taught us how to study it, and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. This is one of uh, the most important things, most valuable things in my particular situation and in my life. In fact, in the letter that I write on 
Fridays, I actually said that if the church was on fire, Steve Lauer and I would run through flames to get this Bible out of the church. <laughs> it stays in my office. Even though I don't study from it that much now, again, the print is not very big, and so I don't actually study from this Bible very much, it is of great value to me. Yeah. So that's my first real study Bible. It's a Bible for young eyes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, I have those is. too. So, so Phil, when we think about this, how would you just describe, you're going to sit down and read the Bible devotionally, and we'll get to sort of a method a little bit, but just you, how do you sit down and process how you just walk through a passage? Mm-hmm. Not, not the end product, but how do you just think about, how do I get through this? Describe that a little bit. Fantastic question, and the church has heard me talk about this before. I'll take a passage of Scripture, and I'll read through it with a pen or a pencil in my hand, and I put a little X or a little check mark by anything that captures my attention. So just a little X, and then I go all the way through the passage, and I'll come back and just start thinking about and studying everything that grabbed my attention. And it could be different today than it was yesterday, Mm -hmm. and tomorrow it could be different than it was today. Just whatever grabs my attention. From those things, I look for the main point of the passage, and then I look for one application that I want to take away. I have used that type of a Bible study technique for literally decades. And it works for me. And I've shared that with our church a number of different times. Awesome. So when you think about that, how... You know, how does that then translate into to what we're going to talk about next in the sense of, um, you know, how do you, do, I guess what I'm asking is, do you have a specific time and place, like, to describe that? Like, I know I'm throwing you for a loop right here. It is uh, from the sense of, like, do you do it in a certain place, <clears throat> a certain time? What's the setting look like for you? <laughs> it changes with the seasons. Here's what I mean by that. My favorite place right now to open my Bible is on our deck in the mornings. So before I come to work, I like to sit out on the deck with a glass of orange juice and my Bible in my lap and my dog laying at my feet and I just enjoy the morning with the Word of God. It's starting to get colder, so that's going to move to our kitchen table. And so I've tried other places in the house, but I just haven't really made those work. I like inside and outside, so it's either kitchen table or on the deck. And that all makes complete sense for me knowing you because, because the, the way God has wired you, you think you kind of um, bounce around through stuff, you know, sort of like, hey, let's look at this, let's look at this, and just sort of zigzag through a text, almost like a stream of consciousness sort of way to do it. So that makes mm-hmm. sense that that would, that would be the way you would approach going through the Bible, which is exactly the way you should because that's the way God wired you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that you bring in the almost like a stream of consciousness because otherwise the bouncing around (laughs) thing could be offensive and he's staying in my house and that uh, (laughs) could get uncomfortable. Not at all. Yeah, it's just follow the trail where, where it leads. And really we should be able to personalize the way we study the Bible. Absolutely. No question about it. So we'll illustrate that in a little bit of a different way. Rather than looking at the first Bible that you studied from, what's the current Bible that you're yeah, studying Yeah, that's a good question. I actually have two Bibles that I, that I use right now. Um, one is a teaching Bible, and that's the one I brought with me, you know, since I'm teaching. And uh, for me, this one is, the reason I like this one is because it doesn't have anything else other than the text in it. Um, and it's big print, bigger print, right? 
Um, single column. I'm, I'm a huge fan of single column. I think that's easier to read. And this is an ESV. And uh, this is the one that um, I actually, when I started preaching at our Troy campus, I bought this um, because I could hold it in one hand as well, too, as a preacher. So yeah. this is the one I carry with me. Um, I like the addition of it, especially because it's genuine leather, so it'll hold up. It's always in my bag. It's always getting thrown around and sort of stuff like that. The other one that I use more for a devotional is one that actually sits by my, by my chair in my office at home. That's a Christian Standard Bible, one that I got when I graduated um, from Southern Seminary the last time, and they gave me those out. And uh, I really like that one too. And uh, one of the things I like about it is it's bigger print. So uh, I really enjoy that too. But that's the one that I use. I don't teach it and I don't take it anywhere else. It stays at my house or it goes to group with me. And uh, I underline in that one. That's the one for my personal study. Cool. You just mentioned single column. Open up your Bible and flip that around <laughs> real quick. When he, he said single column, you might find yourself kind of curious yeah. what he's talking about. It looks like a book rather than looking like a Bible. And I appreciate the fact that you would say it just makes it easier to read because it's what we know. Yeah, you don't read any other books that are double column. I'm not sure why the Bible was ever printed like that, but it mm -hmm. was, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So part of the point to that is find one that's easy to read. Find one that fits your eyes well, because if you don't find one that fits your eyes and tracks with your brain mm -hmm. the right way, you won't open it. Yeah. It's just kind of the way it is. So find one that, that really works for you and fits for you. Same question back to you because you made a statement the other day that we didn't explore and I'm kind of curious about. When is your time of the day that you sit down devotion? Yeah, great question. So I am a night owl and um, in the mornings I like to get up and either I exercise and I get to work. And so like when I get up, I'm ready to just hit the, I don't like to mess around and you know, just sort of lounge around the house or whatever. I just want to go. But when I get home in the evening, uh, my wife, Stephanie, she'll be sitting there watching TV or whatever, and we'll do something. And usually about nine o'clock is whenever I'm like, man, I'm wired. I'm ready to go. And so I usually do my devotional reading, honestly, after when my wife is asleep in the recliner next to me. And uh, usually from about nine till midnight is when I do all my reading do all my studying. I have a, um, a tote, like just like a big plastic tote that I keep all of my study stuff in right beside my recliner. It's got all my, my highlighters, my, my pencils, my pencil sharpener, my notebooks, all the stuff that I need, three or four Bibles, whatever books I'm reading at the time. And I do it in the evening sitting in my recliner. Every once in a while I'll do it, like if it's a weird day where I've got a different schedule, I'll do it in the morning. But generally for me, I do it at night because that's when I'm most mentally engaged. Gotcha. And that kind of threw me for a loop. We were standing in my kitchen when he just hinted at that by saying, I'm not one of those guys that gets up early and studies my Bible. And I thought, well, what's that now? I've known you for a quarter of a century. <laughs> that's unholy. And that <laughs> shocks me. And here's part of why that shocks me. Talk about your method for yeah. just studying devotionally. Yeah, so I, um, I, like to, I like to highlight and underline, more underline than that. So generally what I do is I'll sit down and, and I'll read it. And one of the things that has stuck with me from a professor I had a long time ago in seminary, Dr. Bob Lowry, he said, you should, when you go through, I like to underline and, and I underline things that just stand out to me. And there's really no 
There was no rhyme or reason to the underline. But Dr. Bob Lowry always said, whenever you read your Bible, underline stuff, and then you should go back and look at what you didn't underline. Because we tend to underline what we agree with, and we tend to leave blank what doesn't set well with us, or what doesn't, doesn't you know, resonate with us, or something that's just hard truth, or maybe something we just don't understand. And he used to always say, when you go back and look at your Bible, you should look at what you didn't underline, because that's what God really needs to work on you with. And I think it's a fascinating way, because I do, I underline, oh yeah, man, I agree with that. No, I don't like that. I'm going to skip over that. So I tend to go through, and uh, the other thing that I do is I've become a big journaler in the past several years. And for me to do Bible study, I, I have to write it down. I'm, I'm an analog guy. I like analog stuff anyway, fountain pens, pencils, all that sort of stuff. So to me, that's just a, it's a joy to do that. But I, uh, it's not this one, but it's a notebook just like this, where I tend to do one page per setting. So if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read this passage, I would just uh, write my notes in it and things like that. And, uh, and that, I, I like the journal part of it because it, it's a snapshot of who you are at that time. And when you go back and look at previous journals, you see this is what I was dealing with or this is what I noticed um, or this is was, was a difficult time for me. And you can just gauge, it's sort of like taking a picture of your kids when they grow up, right? You see, this is who they are on this day. And for me, when I, when I journal my Bible study, that does the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a snapshot. I can go back and look and go, man, I've been struggling with that for a long time. Or that used to be a thing that I struggled with and now God has really sort of helped me move through that or whatever. But to me, journaling helps me do that. And mm-hmm. usually my journal is, is kind of, okay, I'm gonna just walk through the text. Here's what I noticed in this paragraph. Kind of, kind of a linear path through. Absolutely, absolutely. The only thing that I would add to what Dr. Lowry said to you was, mm-hmm. as you go back, and you were kind of alluding to this, as you go back through how you highlight or mark up a Bible, you will be actually be able to see the seasons of your life. Oh yeah, absolutely. Utilize different Bibles. Finish with a Bible, put it on the shelf, hold on to it, and then start a new Bible. Maybe as you go into new seasons, but hopefully as you finish studying one, then start a new Bible. And here's why I say that, and I've just started to really realize this at a deeper level. By going back through some of the Bibles that I've had through the years, I can see that I highlighted something in the past that today I didn't. Mm -hmm. because it wasn't speaking to me the same way. And I can put it in context now and say, I know why I was highlighting that during that time. I know why I was underlining it during that time and why I'm not today. Maybe it's because you've received some freedom. Maybe it's because you've battled through something. Maybe it's just a new season of life, whatever it might be. The Bibles tell the story of how you have journeyed through things with God. Yeah, Fair statement? 100%. Now, nothing that Don said at the end of all this surprises me. He's a very methodical thinker. He's a very methodical individual. So journaling makes sense. How he goes through scripture makes sense. The time of day still throws me (laughs) for a loop. But that's okay because that's how it's working right now. Mm -hmm. 
So there's two personal applications of how we get into the Word of God, but we want to give you an idea that isn't just how we do it, though we do, it is something that anyone can do. And here's the one key to it. It takes your devotions to the point of discussion, meaning it opens the door to be able to talk about the Word of God with other people. So it starts personal, and then it can move into any other relationship. We made that statement as we were planning for this this week, and then this morning, we saw it labbed mm -hmm. perfectly with the guys that I pray with, because we, we applied this to one passage that we're not even going to look at today. We applied it at about 8 o'clock this morning with that group of guys, and the discussion that came out of it was a perfect illustration of what we're talking about. So this is how to study the Bible devotionally unto discussion. It's a method that is simply called the 3-2-1 method. There it is up on the screen. 3-2-1 method. Now we're going to break those down for you. It is three observations, two questions, one action point. Any passage of scripture, three observations, Two questions, one action point. But there are some practical ways that can help you with this, like? Yeah, so when you, when you go through it, um, some of the things that I think about are there's no right or wrong answers to it, right? There, we look at that and it is, this is just what I'm observing about the passage. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's just what stands out to me. And, and it will probably be different every time you read a passage based on mm -hmm. what you're doing. Uh, so I always keep that in mind. The questions are not necessarily meant to be answered. So it, you're not like going, hey, here's a question for me to figure out. It's just, it's acknowledging there's something more about this passage that I don't understand. And, you know, I think it's good to do that. And I may come back and look at this a little bit later on or something like or that. Or may not. Or may not. And, or you may years later go back and if you're doing a Bible study, go back and go, hey, I looked at this passage mm -hmm. and this is what I thought about that then and man, I wrote this really good question down and now I wanna go back and look at it years later or maybe I don't, who knows. Um, and then the action point is, it doesn't, it's not like this earth shattering thing a lot of times, it is just, hey, this is something I can do with this today. And really kind of think of it in terms of me. It's not, hey, this is how my wife, this is what she should do about this, you know, or whatever. It is, hey, this is what God just right now is, is putting on my heart. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, the, is not, you're not trying to go to the depths of it forever. You're just, you're going through it. And this is how God's working on me right now. And it doesn't take a ton of time to do it. Nope. And we're actually going to illustrate that for you as well. Because remember, I said, we're going to do this with two passages from First Peter. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it very quickly. So I'm going to start. Don's going to lead me through this, but we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I said that these are two passages that we can read, we can hear, and then we can almost quickly dismiss and forget that we even read them because they don't necessarily resonate with us in our culture and our society. And you'll see what I mean just as I read this. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, so the idea with this is first time through, don't overthink it, don't, don't worry about it, but just like hear the things that stand out to me. You're just training your observational skills in a sense. So Phil, what were the three things that stood out to you in this? Okay, very quickly, three observations, starting in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Sometimes suffering and blessing go hand in hand and one is necessary for the other. Second observation, we should not be afraid in times of trouble. Now that means that we have to rely on God greatly because fear can be our very first reaction. But the Bible says in the face of suffering or struggles or persecution, have no fear. Third observation, there is a strong reason that we need to be constantly prepared to defend our faith. Mm -hmm. Peter says, make sure that you are ready to give a good defense of your faith when you are persecuted, when you're struggling, when you're slandered, whatever the case might be. Be prepared to give a good defense. Awesome. Now, the, the great thing is, those are your observations. They wouldn't Absolutely. necessarily be mine, yep. but that's what you said. So now, what are two questions that just spring up? Okay, it's fun when you get to get into the questions, at least in my mind and my way of thinking. Here it is, my first one. Why does Peter connect our conscience to the struggling and suffering the way he does? Why does that come into play? And remember, we may never answer the question, but it is certainly one to kick mm -hmm. around and even to chew on all day long. And my second one is, really, it's God's will from time to time? that we struggle and suffer? Hmm. Interesting question. Yeah. That's God's will, according to Peter. Yeah, so what would be an action point you take from it? Okay, my action points, actually a lot earlier on in this, go to verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. I'm going to guard my tongue. I'm going to make sure that I watch closely over the things that come out of my mouth, because God is watching, and I want his ears to be open to my prayers. So I don't want to say things to the Lord that would shut that off. So I'm going to guard yeah. my tongue. Yeah, great. And that's, that's it right there. I mean, it's I mean, that was pretty quick. You could take a little bit longer than that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be anything grandiose or bigger than that. It's just that discipline of walking through it. Yep. 
Three, two, one. See how it works? Shake your head yes. Okay? Yeah. Everybody say it with us. Three observations, two, two questions, questions, one action point. It's a wonderful way to study the Bible and open up discussion with other people. We'll illustrate it again so that you see a different perspective. Don, read for us the next passage. All right, so I'm actually going to be doing chapter 4. So we're going to skip a passage there. And uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so might be slightly a little bit different what you're looking at. But since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time, that, uh, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, uh, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All right, so we're going to walk through this again. Let's make sure everybody's on the same page. We have three things to look at. We're looking for three observations, two and one. All right, so Don, three observations. Uh, the things that stood out to me, uh, one is, is that suffering is a perspective. Uh, because he says here, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. That the way that we understand suffering changes everything. So my perspective of suffering is really, really important. So suffering is about perspective. A second one uh, comes down in verse 2 where he talks about uh, that phrase, just the will of God. That God actually has a will for how we live. It's not my will, it's God's will for how I live. And then the third one um, is down a little bit more, it's in verse four, but just that we will be misunderstood and, um, and really be talking about by people who are not Christians because of the way we live. And uh, we'll be maligned because of that. And that's something we should expect. Absolutely. Great observations. Two questions. Uh, my two questions were, uh, and these were funny. This was funny to me that these were my questions uh, just because I was like, I really, I don't really know what this is talking about. I would have to really dig into this. But one was, uh, let me make sure I get the verse down here right. One was when Peter says, oh, in verse, uh, verse one it is, when he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, that phrase, I was just like, what exactly does that mean you've ceased from sin, right? I would want to at some point perhaps investigate that a little bit. The second one is down in verse 6 when he says the phrase that stuck out to me was that um, he preached even to those who are dead. I think I know what he's talking about there, but that's something I would go, I kind of want to know a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. So that's so let me give you just a little perspective on that real quick because I appreciate the way you approached those two questions. Don is a preacher, has been for 35 years. 35 years. He is an educator. He is highly educated himself with two master's degrees and a PhD. But you just heard him say, I don't know what that means. Yeah. And I want to get deeper into that. Folks, don't be afraid of things like that. Sometimes, doesn't matter who we are, there are great questions that we want to explore, and I love that about the Bible. 
love that about the Bible. Absolutely. Nobody ever arrives at the point that we understand everything within it. And three, two, one helps bring that out. Yeah. So one, one action point. Uh, my action point was when he, when he talks down here about the idea that um, the Gentiles will, you know, don't be surprised when they don't understand why you're not participating with, in all these things with them. My action point was really to go, to examine myself and go, do people who are not Christians know that I am a Christian by the way I live? Do I look a little too much like the world at some point? And just to, just to let that roll around in my head and start thinking about that and let God start working on my heart and my mind as I think about that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So mm-hmm. see how it works? And all you have are three components. If you have the journal, this is just a one-page entry. Mm-hmm. It's not huge. So let's say it together again. I'm looking for three observations, observations. <clears throat> two questions, and one, one action point. Mm-hmm. But Don also made the point in his observations, that perspective changes this. Perspective changes this. We've already acknowledged that the two passages that we looked at because of the culture and the world that we live in, they are hard for us to embrace. So we read them, we study them, we move on, and we promptly forget them. But one change of the equation, one change in our life can completely change how we see this. Now, we don't have the ability to change those equations, but sometimes we get the privilege of seeing people that have had that changed. This past spring, Don was in Athens, Greece over Easter, which was a wonderfully cool opportunity where he was sharing the gospel with refugees that have come to Athens, and many of them have come there because of their faith, Mm -hmm. persecuted because of Christ. And it was a difficult journey. Don, tell us just briefly about that. Yeah, these are, these are actually students in our Merrill Institute courses. So I'd, I'd known them online and then finally got to meet them in person and just spend some time with them and hearing their stories. And um, it, it, was, it was just uh, otherworldly to hear some of the things that they had gone through and see not only what they were dealing with as people who were trying to escape just all sorts of difficulty in life and hearing their stories and and one of the things that stood out to me was every single time I met somebody, the thing that they wanted to tell me was not, hey, here's where I'm from or here's my nationality. It was the very first thing they wanted to say was, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Like their calling card was, you know, for us it is, hey, I'm Don Sanders. I'm from the Midwest, blah, blah, blah. No, theirs was, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. All that other stuff is second, secondary. And it was just a powerful, powerful, Powerful time to hear their stories of how God was working in their lives. Crazy interesting how persecution whittles away all the externals. Oh, yeah. And leaves us solely with Jesus. Yeah. So I asked Don to do something kind of subjective, and this this is a tough assignment. I asked him to go back through the passage that he just read from the perspective of the refugees that he met with in Greece Mm -hmm. and answer the same three questions. So... There is nothing scientific about this. It is just him taking what he learned and what he saw mm-hmm. while he was there and applying it through the passage. And sometimes we can do that too. So real quick, yeah. what are the observations you think those folks would make? Yeah, I went through and I thought to myself, you know, I've been in courses with them and I've, heard, I've read the writing and, and heard them in person. I just thought, how, 
How, what are some things they've said that make me think this is perhaps how they would do this? So yeah, subjective. Uh, I think for them, they would probably say something like this. Uh, one is suffering is a reality. Suffering isn't a, it might happen. Suffering is a reality. You will suffer for Christ. A second one is that people do not understand our approach to suffering. That part of suffering isn't always just a, hey, I want to respond, I want to fight back, I want to assert my rights, I want to do all that stuff. That, that the world will not understand how we approach suffering. And I think this was a big one, and I saw this firsthand, is that suffering connects us to one another. Hmm. That suffering is one of the ways that God uses us in the church to help one another through suffering. Whether that be we're suffering literally in the same spot or perhaps you're even on the other side of the world and you can help me as I suffer through these as well too. Mm -hmm. Two questions. Yeah, the two questions I thought they would say was why do some people suffer and other people not suffer? Um, and I never heard them ask that question, so maybe that's my question I wish they would have asked, but I never heard them ask that, but I would, I would want to ask that question in that. And then also, how does suffering connect us practically? Um, you know, both to one another, but also to Jesus, mm -hmm. for sure. And one action point. I think their action point would be, we are reliant on one another during our suffering, mm -hmm. that we have a responsibility to help one another as we suffer together. Very and much that's so. one of the things, that's our mission. Their, their mission is based on that. Mm -hmm. See how perspective changes mm -hmm. the way we read scripture? Really does. One change of the equation sees us digging at a different level. It's really quite intriguing. Well, hopefully you have found a pattern that maybe you can apply and start using in your own devotional life to fill in some holes that have existed for you. The three, two, one method is really good. It can be used personally, it can be used in small groups, it can be used unto discussion. So watch what happens with it if you'll try it. But we want to give you three warnings as well. And they're just real simple ones as you start studying the Bible. Here they are. One change of equation greatly impacts the application of a passage. We just talked about that. Number two, know that your Bible, study, Bible studies won't always be earth-shattering. So sometimes as you go through the three-two-one method, you're like, huh, okay, that was good. I'll see you again tomorrow, Lord and you're gonna move on. It's not always going to be earth shattering and if you expect it to be, you will be disappointed. And number one, the more you do it, the more comfortable it becomes. Study your Bibles, study your Bibles. And we mean that so much that I wanna give you a challenge to start the three, two, one method using the book of Second Peter because we're moving to it very quickly in our study. So you'll already be ahead of the game if you start getting into it now. And then as we study it together as a church, you'll be prepared for it. Three, two, one, get a journal, use it with Second Peter, and watch what happens.